Hello and welcome to the Dimagi Kira podcast. My name is Chinmay Sharma and I'm well I was going to say PhD candidate but I have just finished so that's not technically true. I'll be called I think what I'll be called is an early career academic and what that means is that I have a PhD and I'm unemployed. Um so this podcast grew out of this idea I had when I would interview folks for my project or talk to other PhD students about their projects. um and their work and and i was i realized i was having these great conversations with them like because these are all young people doing really great really new exciting stuff and i was like this should be like i can record a, a lot of this and this would be interesting for people to just listen to just know about what happens behind the scenes and it's not just you know what happens behind the scenes it's also what gets left out of what is finally brought out by us um what what is kind of left unexplained what is um what we would talk about within us within our circles but not really to anyone outside our fields um so i thought it would be good to i guess i thought it would be it would be good to have a podcast that would ideally be a place where we can chat, chat about um you know all these things that are behind the scenes or left out or obscured by jargon or uh behind paywalls Um so that's what the po- podcast is about. I just wanted to say one last thing before introducing my guest today. Uh the Hindi Urdu title for the podcast is Dimagi Kira, which literally translates into brainworm, but signifies a strangeness of the mind. Um and the reason I'm calling the podcast this at least for right now, uh before I get someone shouting at me is that I don't know I don't know about my guest, but I know that to be in in a field where we write or where we produce culture you have to be at least a little bit eccentric or rather to paraphrase Terry Pratchett you don't have to be eccentric to work here but it helps so without further ado i would like to introduce my guest today he is mahesh rao he is an author who has um an excellent short story collection called 1.2 billion stories um and also i'm sure an excellent novel i haven't read it yet so <laughs> i'm sure it is but i haven't read it so i don't want to say anything more about it but the novel is called the smoke is rising and i look forward to reading it so what i'm going to do is read out the author's blurb and embarrass him a little before he comes on the mic um so the author's blurb in the short story collection says mahesh rao was born and grew up in nairobi kenya His debut novel The Smoke is Rising won the Tata First Book Award and was shortlisted for the Shakti Bhat Prize and the Crossword Award. His stories have been shortlisted for the Bridport Prize, Bridport am I saying that right? Uh the Commonwealth Short Story Prize and the Zoetrope All Short All Story Short Fiction Contest and he lives in Mysore, India. Mahesh, thank you for coming and taking out time to speak with me today. Thank you for having me. It's a great pleasure. to be here. So, I guess if we could start about with you telling us a little bit about um how you, like how you came to to be an author and like what was your journey to becoming an author? Sure. Um well, I used to be um uh well, a few things before I became a writer full time. I I I trained to be a lawyer and that's what I was before. 
Um, oh, wow. You're looking at me in, with utter horror, but yes, that is that is true. <laughs> I um, so I was a lawyer. I've been a, a bookseller as well, and um, uh, I've uh, worked uh, briefly in academia. Um, and you're nodding at the briefly, um, <laughs> but. Um, so, yeah, I did various things. And I think um, I just got to that stage in my life where I decided that I really uh, wanted and and particularly needed for myself to write uh, the novel that I ended up writing. Yeah, sure. So um, so I moved to India and I, I must say I was terribly foolish at that time because mm. I was very naive. I... Uh, didn't do much homework about this. I kind of moved and thought it would all be okay. And it was eventually, but yeah. I wasn't quite prepared for uh, the the periods when it wasn't quite okay. Oh, um, okay. So, I, I mean, the writing was, was the um, least painful part of it for me <laughs> because I think I was just really ready to write. Uh, I, I'd come to this um, a little later than some other people come to it. And uh, the novel was very much formed in my head, yeah. um, quite a lot of it. So so I was ready to write and the words came streaming out and it didn't feel like a trial. It didn't yeah. feel like I had to uh, discipline myself hugely. I was very keen to write it, so I wrote it. And um, it was all the business afterwards that I wasn't quite prepared for because I had assumed that, you know, one just wrote a novel and someone would be kind enough to publish it and, and it would go like that. <laughs> but um, like I say, I was really very naive about the whole thing. And Though to be honest, at the time in 2000, it was a bit like that, wasn't no, it? No, no, this was, this was in 2008. Um, uh -huh. 12, yeah, 2008 was when I uh, started writing it. So by the time I finished, it was 2010, I think. Okay. Yeah, when I was sending out sure. um, to agents. So I wasn't quite prepared for that uh, part of it. Uh, okay. I didn't know anyone in the uh, uh, publishing industry or yeah. anyone in the literary field at all. Yeah. Um, um, I, I really kind of had to discover everything for myself hmm. uh, from how to write a covering letter, what is the process, sure. what do you send, what are yeah. the submission guidelines, you know, all of these yeah. things that, yeah, yeah. that sometimes people can help you with. But yeah. I didn't do a um, creative writing course. I didn't have that kind of um, resource. I was really just Googling everything um, and playing it by ear. Sure. And, um, and I don't think I had quite mentally prepared myself for the level of rejection that I um, faced. Uh, initially oh, okay. so so yeah that was that was quite something so do you think um just to pick up on that do you think um creative writing do you think creative doing a creative writing course would have made a difference in how you write or or how you get published do you think well, you I, would have benefited from it i think i i i think i would have benefited it, uh, from it in one way um the main way that I think people benefit from it is that it gives people time and space to write, which they sure. they normally don't have if they have a, a busy working life, they're doing other things. And I think the probably the main virtue of the course is that it gives you the time and the space to write uh, if you're able to afford it or if it's funded. Um, but the other thing that it can give you, um, and I think it does give you, is... There is an infrastructure around the course yeah. which allows you to meet agents yeah. and it allows you to uh, be informed of the process of publishing um, the cycle yeah. uh, 
that a book would go through. Yeah. And and all of this is immensely helpful. I mean, I don't think you need to do it for that reason. Sure. But, but it's all there and it's all it's very much books. part of the package yeah. that you get. Um, and it didn't even occur to me that I would need it, to be honest. It's not that I thought about it and sure. then I rejected it as a path. I just, yeah. I was just so keen to write. I just sat in a room and wrote and then, you know, scrabbling around trying to send this book to people. No, but there are times um, when you write where it's like just sitting in the room and writing can be like, wow, okay, I'm, I'm doing this. It's like a, it can be a big thing. Well, you see, for that book, I I didn't have a problem. Ever since, I've hated it. You know, I mean, sitting I, I in the room and yeah, writing. I hate writing now. You know, it's that <laughs> it's that um, Dorothy Parker. Now you're quote, into podcasting. <laughs> I'm, I'm not leaving the studio if I can help it. Um, no, it's that Dorothy Parker quote of um, "I hate writing, but I love having written." I mean, you don't want to make too much of a meal about it, and yeah, kind of, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, stress how awful it is but yeah. it is it is pretty awful <laughs> the, the actual writing um and then yeah. you know depending on how your day has gone you may or may not be yeah reasonably satisfied with what you've accomplished but what so if i can ask you like this might be a bit personal but why do you think you have become what would you say disillusioned with writing um, no i wouldn't say disillusioned i just think it's very difficult you know it's sure. just very difficult um to make yourself right uh yeah when you're sort of pretty much convinced that what you're writing isn't really very good, you know, on, on a day-to-day basis, it sure. doesn't seem that good to you, sure. you know, or it can seem amazing when you write it and yeah. then you return to it the next day yeah, and yeah, you yeah. discover that it's entirely awful. Yeah. I don't know if you saw this, but apparently George R. R. Martin and Stephen King were, were having a conversation somewhere. And I think George asked Stephen King how about Stephen King's writing method. And Stephen King is like, you know, I get up in the morning, I do this, I do this, and then I do, and I will, at the end of the day, I have thousand words written. Um, and that's, I do that every day and then. And George is like, really? Like, is there no day where you just kind of look at your work and think like, this is shit. Mm. <laughs> Why shouldn't I be a postman? <laughs> I mean, I can't imagine that there's any writer who doesn't think like that or feel like that, at least sure. sometime, sometimes, yeah. you know, because I think it's just it's just the nature of, of yeah. what you do and, and the fact that you have good days and bad days like yeah. like anyone else. Um, and I think also because you're, you're reading a lot and you, and you get into writing because you were also reading. So when you read your work, you have sometimes a very, very critical... Uh, I yeah, you have to. You're you're wearing a different exactly. hat, and you're you're being an editor, and you're being a reader, and yeah. you're trying to forget that you actually wrote it. Yeah. Um. And um. And and you know, time does a funny thing. Time and distance yeah, away exactly. from your writing. Yeah. So you know, you you can have uh, uh, told yourself that something is fairly ready, but then you you let it sit for a while. Yeah. And then you return to it, and all the um the impurities have risen to the surface. And also maybe you have changed. So like things that you liked in the first draft or like whatever the the previous draft is not something that you like anymore. You know, it doesn't like it's that joke that makes you laugh for 34 times when you're going over it. And the 35th time you just you want to chuck it out. Yeah, it could be any one of those things. But I think um, I think it's very difficult to get a first draft done. And, and oh, yeah. for the time being, that's that's your task when you're when you're especially with a novel, because it's sure. such a such an endeavor in terms of getting the bulk of it down yeah um and then and then revisiting it is a whole new task um and uh 
tidying it up, editing it, changing it. And that could be that could be a major thing where you're virtually rewriting the novel. Yeah. So of the two of your uh, works, the novel and the short story collection, which one would you say was the more fun? Um, Is it a bit like asking which <laughs> child you like the most? No, it's not actually, because... I think it was easier to write the novel, uh, like I say, because I think I, I hadn't really written before I started uh, to write it. So I was really ready. I, okay. It wasn't something I was making myself do. Yeah. I didn't have um, any blocks. I was I was really ready to write this novel. So it was all just streaming out. Okay. Um, so in that sense, I suppose it was it was easier. And I think in terms of short stories, they are more difficult to write. Um, okay. You know, I mean, I think that for a start, it's a it's a slower process. Really? I think I think a short story can take an awfully long time to finish, given what it is. You know, given the number of words, given given the shape of it, there is a certainly in my case, there's a different process of writing. I'm much more um, critical as I go along, and okay. it it takes me quite a long time to finish a story. Really? Okay. So, as in, what do you mean? Like the shape of it is different in the sense that um, because it's you have to structure it differently, and you have, you have it's within a certain quite a short word yeah, count I mean, that you have to be very very careful about every word that you put in. Short stories are really all about shape. I mean, they're they're about other things too, but yeah. the shape is critical to yeah. to what it becomes. Yeah. Whereas with a novel, there is a great arc, and there is a certain yeah. amount of slack or drift that you can allow yourself sure, during yeah. during the writing process. Yeah. Um, one, because novels are like that; it is in yeah. their nature. Yeah. And two, uh, a lot of the stuff will will go during the the editorial process with your editor sure. uh, or with your agent. Yeah. Um. So so you kind of allow yourself this latitude, but yeah. I think with a with a short story, you're so aware of the structure of it and the shape of it yeah. um, that it's something that you're you're very much focused on, even even in your first draft. Oh, okay. So it it feels a bit like the the whole editing process is privatized in the short story. Like the author is kind it, of feel that you feel more responsible. For you the you draw it all in because yeah. you know it's so crucial, and also short stories are all about economy. You know, yeah. economy of language, um, and I think it helps enormously to to be aware of that right from the start. Yeah, because then you're you're, you're very intensely focused on saying what you need to say yeah. in as pithy a way as possible. Yeah, that's true. So, what would you say in your short story collection? Um, is the kind of underlying theme. Because I, I, I figured, I thought that there was one, but I just want to see if I got it right. Um, if, I mean, I, it's difficult uh, to, to pinpoint a, one certain theme. If I had to, I think I would say... I mean, you can put more than one. Yeah, yeah. I think if I had to say, uh, uh, if I had to identify one particular theme, it would be difference. Um, and way. by that, uh, well, I say is this is this I, Derrida's difference. <laughs> no, this is no, no. It's no, it's most certainly not that. Um, uh, I, I I go very far from Derrida actually, but I, I think um, I think I mean diversity, and I don't use the word diversity much mm, because it's it's sure. kind of become this this term that is yeah. um, very overloaded and uh, overused. So. Yeah. Yeah, so instead of diversity, I'm saying difference. And what I mean by that is um, 
the collection of short stories uh, was my attempt at a kind of snapshot of some of India mm. um, at a certain point in time. And the thing I think that unites all the stories mm. is the difference contained yeah. within them and the differences that they they have uh, with each other. Yeah. And um, that was my main um, aim, I would say, that as I was uh, completing each story and I would move on to the next one, I really wanted to make sure that what I was starting next was as different as possible um, from what I just finished. So, ah, okay. That so, makes a lot of sense now. Yeah. So yeah. you, I mean, as you go through the stories, you you see that yeah. there are different backgrounds and people yeah. are of different. Yeah, you can um, make out that it's very intentional that you're going yeah. like if it, if one is in Rajasthan, then the next will be northeast. Yeah, and that that again. So people people often ask me, you know, uh, how did you pick the states and did you was it a a concerted plan right from the very beginning. You, you had set. a Hunger Games contest, didn't you? No, I, <laughs> I just... Because I think people get, get curious about that because also, you know, especially in India, people... I mean, we can all get a little bit nativist and, you know, why did you pick this state and why did you not pick this state? And I think you might be under-emphasizing <laughs> when you say nativist. I'm, be, I'm, be, I'm a being little polite. Bit <laughs> I'm being polite. I think you're underselling it, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, but that wasn't planned. I didn't. I didn't have a... A, a list of states that I wanted to visit through the stories or anything. Sure. I, I just wanted to make each story different. And what, what seemed to be happening almost by stealth is that I would finish a story and then I would think of another milieu or a, a character. And because India is the way it is, that person necessarily yeah. was living a long way away and yeah. living in another state and living in another community, perhaps speaking another language perhaps being from another religion. And it's sure. just, it just, um, as I had written about four or five, I was discovering that this was happening. And then it was more of a concerted effort because okay. then a plan sort of took shape. Sure. And I thought, well, let's just keep going. Let's keep doing them in different states. And let's keep, okay. uh, yeah. let's keep trying to play around with this. So then the question I have is that, do you think, so did you, did you do it like how Vikram Seth does it, where he kind of immerse, where, you know, for suitable world, he, for suitable boy, he very uh, famously went and lived with a Muslim family in Nizamuddin. Um, right. So I didn't know that. Oh, okay. Yeah. I might be wrong, though. No, no, no. I, I'm <laughs> I sure you're right. Know. I just didn't know. No, I, I might be mixing up things. I'm, yeah. I'm not. So please take it with like a lot of salt. <laughs> okay, okay. But, um, and whoever's listening to this, please take that with a lot of salt. Um, but I do. Um, so did you, because one of, one of the things I realized is that you have this way of, dealing with certain middle class ironies um you know where where it will be like the narrative will be going at at like within its kind of you know structure and then suddenly there'll be like this really snarky and really wonderful comment about the irony of the the character well, I'll be honest, it's not the first time I've been accused of being snarky, but... Um, Which is not a bad thing. I don't mean that as... Like, that's part, one of the things I really loved about the collection. But I think, um, yeah, I mean, I think... Uh, well, A, probably we, your natural voice does does uh, slip into uh, a lot of the stories. But also, it's it's a way of undercutting what's what's going on i think you mm. know it's it's a way of um leading the reader in in a particular direction um and i think that's what uh short stories should do uh 
at their heart, there yeah. should be a sting in the tail. Yeah. Um, and there should be a moment of transformation. Yeah. And very often the the moment of transformation comes through that shift in register. Yeah, because, I mean, so there was this one point, and this is just something that's come out right now, but I, I love this point where in your short story, The Philanderer, where it's a Muslim lawyer mm. who's uh, sleeping around with a lot of women. Mm. Um, and you describe this one scene where he's making love to one of them. And the woman says, what this country needs, one woman had said, her face glistening as she held on the headboard, is more Muslims, like you, secular. Unwilling to respond at that precise moment, he said, I'm very close, here, bite, my, bite on my thumb. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, that, was, that was kind of me being slightly mischievous, I think, because the fact that he's Muslim is entirely irrelevant to the exactly. novel. Exactly. I mean, to the, sorry, to the short story. And to that moment in and that, to that short moment, story. It's, it's irrelevant to But to I can totally everything. imagine like a middle class woman saying, we need more Muslims like you, secular. And and I mean, I mean, partly it's done for the humor because yeah. it is this absurd thing where, yeah. where they're having sex and then she suddenly comes out with this comment. Yeah. But, but it's also the sort of thing that does happen. Exactly. And it's the sort of thing that you you can't escape sometimes yeah. you know where you're you're um uh, cast in a certain identity or you're viewed through a certain exactly. gaze yeah. all the time and yeah. i think even for someone like him who is privileged he's a wealthy yeah. lawyer yeah. he spends his time um philandering yeah. so you know he's not he's not a particularly disadvantaged member of society sure. But he is a Muslim, and even for someone like him, this yeah, thing will, that will comes crop clanging up down. even in the most inopportune moments, yeah. like when he's on the point of orgasm. So, yeah. so um, you know, I mean, <laughs> you kind of have to feel a little sorry for yeah. him um, for a number yeah. of reasons. Yeah, yeah. But I, I love, yeah, I really love that, that timing to bring out that middle class irony. Um, yeah, I think timing timing is really key with a lot of these things. It's, it's mm. dropping... The, the right phrase in at the right moment. I think yeah. particularly with anything comic, uh, yeah. whether it's performance or with writing, it's it's making yeah. sure it's dropped in at the right moment and also that you don't dwell on it, yeah. that you don't labor the joke. Yeah, oh, okay. Because I did, so one of the mm. things, the way it seemed to me when I was reading it is that there are these flashes of humor where it's, you know, it's it seems like a very nice sedate story and suddenly there's like, there's a sudden glint and you see a dagger come out thrust and come go back in and you like if you weren't paying attention you wouldn't know what happened well i think that's the in my well in my opinion i i feel that's the most effective way of doing it because a there is the element of surprise yeah um, you're not you're not signposting that this is a comic story and yeah people aren't there looking for the next gag yeah um, the other thing is that really it, it is about timing. It's slipping in there and slipping out and then moving on with the narrative. And yeah. I think that's that. those are the kinds of stories that I like to read. So. And one of the things, so what I, what was interesting to me is that it built up to this, um, as in I, I don't think that, um, like I don't want to give this impression that it was just, oh, narrative and then you added a joke and then narrative. But in the sense that it was integral to the narrative because... One of the things, and this is what I thought was the kind of underlying theme in your your collection, was this way you deal with power dynamics within, like, either between two individual characters or through a whole host, a whole community which has been disenfranchised um, or just one person who feels powerless. Um, 
so but at the same time there was this kind uh, there was this interplay of power where there is you you begin the story thinking that oh the power dynamics are set and this is how they're set and but you end up with kind of overturning them yeah i mean you're absolutely right i am fascinated by power dynamics and also relative power dynamics yeah so very often you have to see these things in a kind of a matrix if that's not too yeah. um you know sciency a word for a short story it's the intersection of all sorts of things yeah. like identity uh, uh class gender sexuality all sorts of things yeah um which which cause frictions and yeah. it's those rough edges where yeah. where these uh, identities collide or yeah. rub up against each other unexpectedly yeah. that really interest me and i think that create yeah. the drama and conflict that that go to the heart of many of the stories yeah. so for example there is the story uh the trouble with dining out which is i was is, just thinking about that which yeah. which is um two couples uh yeah. having dinner in a smart uh japanese restaurant in pondicherry yeah and on the face of it these are two extremely privileged cu- couples although one couple is, is even more privileged even than more the privileged, other yeah um and, and there's wh- almost like a james thurberish kind of a thing you know where like there are these two really privileged couples kind of in competition yeah i mean the the power dynamics are various yeah around this table yes and um i think we we all know this from our own social interactions yeah. uh we're kind of dealing with it subconsciously all the time yeah whether at work or socially and this story i think is just a, a mild exaggeration of that kind of uh interplay of power dynamics yeah. because we have um an extremely sexually aggressive a wealthy man yeah. who is blatantly coming on to the wife of another man yes but um her husband chooses not to do a lot about it because yeah. there's a lot at stake for him yeah. by um acting to in a sense protect his wife yeah um uh and she also has profound issues with her own husband and yeah. so there and 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 the wealthier man's wife also exists as a as a counterpoint to this. So it's a kind of complicated yeah. uh whirlpool of dynamics yeah. that's kind of going around this table and I think I was just very interested in how these things play out because yeah. nothing is said openly. No. And this is this is very much a a mark of of life in India, you yeah. know, uh a lot of things have to be alluded to or they have yeah. to be um <laughs> hidden, swept under yeah, the carpet. Yeah, yeah. Well, there's a lot of euphemistic um conversation happening well the the surface must not break this yeah. is the thing you know yeah. the, the underneath everything is is in a bit of a torment and yeah. and it's all it's all about to kick off you feel this simmering tension but yeah. but on the face of it you know course after course is arriving yeah. and everyone is you know pouring yeah. the wine and and eating the food and yeah. the uh the the surface gloss of the evening is yeah. not disturbed um i suppose until the very end even then it it feels a bit like that the power dynamics have suddenly overturned like sudden there is this very very definite but also very subtle shift of power dynamics where you know the normal the kind of cliched power dynamics would be the wealthy rich man preying on the 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 poorer man's wife and then sudden there there is a shift and it's not exactly sudden but it's definitely there 
so that you have to kind of like I had to go back and be like, am I reading this right? Is has this has this equation completely overturned and in, inverted itself? And then at the end, it's it's like at the point where even the wealthy man is a bit like, I can't, I can't deal with this. But I think that is a deliberate thing again because it's a built-in ambiguity and it's yeah. there as a very deliberate thing. Yeah. Because that's again, I think, a mark of the short story. Uh, as, as we've read it and, and known yeah. it, uh, particularly through through the Western writers, um, your reader has to do a, quite a bit of the work. Yes. You know, I mean, you as a writer, you, you've left your story there, but you've left yeah. enough gaps yeah. for the reader to um, insinuate himself yeah. or herself. Yeah. And, you know, it's their story now. Once it's published, it's yeah. as much theirs as it is yours. Oh, yeah, definitely. So, so you know, and I, I, I remember uh, speaking to a book club about the collection. And hmm. there was one woman in particular who was, I think, quite aggrieved about some of the ambiguities <laughs> um, in the stories. Because, you know, she, she, she wanted to know, like, what exactly happened? Like, what transpired? You know, in Why fact, is I, one plus one not two? I have come here to... <laughs> find out because you know I read all these stories and I really enjoyed them but you know I just need that one step further from you and and I said I don't know it's it's you it's know up to you. it's up yeah. to you it, it is entirely up to you and I, I guess I can see why why you know maybe some people might find that a little frustrating but but I think it's that that keeps you thinking about it and yeah. that's the quality I love in a great short yeah. story which is that you you're mulling it over for days yeah and to me and to be honest with you like for me it wasn't even the question oh do they finally then consummate this relationship because at the end it's it's really not about that exactly in a sense it's irrelevant because you're, yeah. you're, it's actually the negotiation exactly of, it's of about the power. dynamics of how that's playing out yeah uh, rather than what hap- like what is the conclusion of it yeah. Um so yeah, for me like that that's what I really loved about it that you really delved into the kind of power dynamics. Yeah, thank you. No, that's very kind of you. But also I feel it it's it's a it's a mark sometimes of people who tend to only read novels hmm. um which um aren't terribly ambiguous, you know, or which could spell uh, it out for you. Sure. And then and then and then you might read a collection of short stories which which when they're good I think they do tend to have that um, yeah, uh, built in space. Sure, uh, and then it might not be as satisfying. Yeah, I mean, one of the short stories that I I loved as a child was this. Um, we had this short story in school, the ISC syllabus, which um, in India's, I don't know about this, but I've been told it's better than the CBSC syllabus. Right. Um, so I mean, and given the story, I'm not surprised because there was this story about I think it's called the Lion or the Princess, and it's about he keeps the details very he the the writer is very consciously i don't want to say he because i don't remember who the writer was so it might have been a woman and i don't want to be okay. too sexist or sexist at all um but um so the writer has this um uh he just he's uh the way the writer puts it is just that oh this is a story set in a roman type times and so there is a coliseum, uh, a coliseum mm-hmm. and you have those games. And there is this thing where if you are found to be breaching the law, you are given this choice in the coliseum. You're taken to the coliseum, you're given this choice that there are two doors and one of them uh, is the princess, is a princess, um, 
the daughter of the king and the other is a lion mm-hmm. and your innocence is decided by which door you choose right um sorry not the princess but just like a very uh, wealthy and beautiful noble woman um and so the story goes that uh, the man this young man is found um in a relationship with the king's daughter and he's taken to to the dungeons and he's locked in and he's to be presented to the coliseum to make that choice so you know if he gets the lion he's guilty if he gets the princess he's innocent now oh uh, sorry the noble woman he's innocent and so the 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 princess finds out who what the choice is and which door will have what and the short story leaves it at precisely the point what did she tell the prince mm because if she told the prince that like if she if she loves the prince and wants him to survive of course she'll tell them tell him which um which she, door she won't send him to the lion she won't send him to the lion but at the same time will she will will she be able to see him happy with another woman mm. yeah so these are the choices yeah and then he just says you decide and he leaves it at that yeah and that for me that really i really love that about that story because it was it was also a bit of like yeah you decide like i'm not going to force anything on you just do what you will with that yeah no i think i think we are very interested in those uh processes of decision making and yeah. and how we get to a certain point yeah though what what is interesting also for me is that the the you know the point you made about the surface must not break and i felt that is first of all i also felt that that is maybe not a delhi thing per se but also like something within the upper class middle class milieu like you said um that's definitely a thing and it reminded me have you seen dil dhadakne do the i the, haven't no oh you haven't no. oh okay because there was the scene in it where um, they they're basically bitching about this character and how the character's husband is having affairs with various women behind her back but the minute the character comes in they just completely shut up yeah and but the character knows that they have been talking about this so she delivers a snarky line putting them in place but again it's very passive aggressive it's never yeah revealed. i mean this is a very uh common and familiar mode of engagement i think for any of us from <laughs> indian families you know i think uh uh surface surface uh, appearances are everything very often sure. so um it's a, it's a, it's a rich theme to mine <laughs> <laughs> yeah and and you have minded quite well i thought i i thought it was um i mean there were others like the hero um which also which was interesting because that was baffling to me a little bit because i i didn't know um what happens to you know one of the characters if he lives or dies or mm. um it's left very open yeah yeah i think this might have been one of the ones that upset the woman at the book club <laughs> um, <laughs> you know but um yeah but i was also like well that makes sense like why not yeah i mean i think i it's not necessary to to spell everything out and again like yeah. you, like you were saying earlier that wasn't the point of of the story the point was really yeah. again how you got to to um got to the end and his yeah. his 
ambiguous and and strange and conflicted relationship yeah. with the other boy at the same uh, akara so yeah. you know which is i must say that was the story that i had to do most research for having never been to a an i was akara. wondering about that yeah i've never been to an i still haven't been to an akara i've seen yeah. lots and lots of pictures by the way akara is basically a wrestling pit yeah. uh, for people who don't know um is basically a wrestling pit where indian wrestlers are trained and often that's where they also get like so they can be trained for i think national wrestling as well so they can be trained for national wrestling sports but they can also be trained for um basically being kind of well it's it has looms for the ve- party it has various functions i think i mean okay. it's a very old tradition across yeah. india so yeah. north south um yeah. you know i mean i know they exist uh, certainly in, in sort of hindi heartland as well as yes. in south india um and uh they they're training they're wrestling academies uh yeah. which are usually presided over by a guru yeah and um uh the the wrestlers the pehlwans they they the intention is to train them up so that they fight tournaments dangal yeah. yeah. dangal is not a word that many people knew until until amir khan's year, movie yeah until amir khan's movie but which by the way did you know did you hear about this that it's beating guardians of the galaxy in china Oh wow, that's amazing. Yeah, it's earning more money than Guardians of the Galaxy 2. <laughs> that too. is quite amazing. Yeah. Um, anyway, sorry, go ahead. <laughs> so, uh, you know, so the so it is a it, it is a wrestling academy, but it's also uh depending on which tradition you're in mm. because this is the other interesting thing. There is the Hindu uh Akara sure. tradition, but yeah. there is also a Muslim uh Akara tradition. Uh, so are they segregated along along religious lines? See, I don't I I assume I haven't really read that much about the Muslim ones but okay. where I first came across the story about um a Muslim pehlwan and um in fact I don't even know if they're called akharas in uh, in the Muslim tradition but uh, Mushraf Ali Farooqi has written a book yes. called Between Clay and Dust uh yeah, which yeah, yeah. is about an aging tawaif a, a prostitute okay and also an aging wrestler a uh, pehlwan and their relationship okay. and so his is set in pakistan okay. and so it's it's interesting uh for me because again i read his uh, novel uh which i liked very much and i read it what's it called I, again it's called between clay and dust okay and i read it after i'd written my story and so again it was very interesting to me to see that there were commonalities but also that the picture he paints is is quite specific because from the materials i read um you know these are very the 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 hindu hindu indian akharas are run along extremely religious lines um yeah. so so and Hanu, i would also Hanuman, imagine caste lines caste lines as well caste yeah. lines as well and and hanuman plays a a big role sure, yeah. in uh in in the, uh, yeah, the spirit yeah. of the place yeah. you know he's he's certainly the which the, is quite remarkable considering that a pehlwana wrestlers who kind of made the iconography of hanuman popular like dara yeah, singh yeah which exactly. is like it's a really interesting ir- ironic but interesting cycle it's very interesting on many levels in terms of the iconography in terms of um uh also the modernization because a lot of the 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 wrestlers who have gone on to the male wrestlers who have gone on to uh international competitions you know commonwealth games or or the olympics or whatever have started off in these these sorts of akaras and then had to switch to the more professionalized um oh. uh, training that that you might get for an international competition oh, so okay. um so that's that's quite interesting and um 
And just uh, what I was very interested in was the element of a closed world, because these are places for a start that women can't enter, you know, at all. Uh, I think, again, it depends on on the Akara. But traditionally, the view is that uh, the presence of a woman uh, will uh, water down your strength, your... (laughs) You know, I mean, okay. there would be there would be variations of this. So perhaps, okay. perhaps a, a, a woman of of menstruating age would not be allowed. You know, so th- sure. there are all kinds of um, permutations and yeah, combinations yeah, yeah, yeah. of this belief. But essentially, these are uh, male domains. You know, this is this is a, a male domain. This is a very macho place. Um, it's it's where your strength is built up. Hmm. It's where you're turned into a fighter. Um, one recurring theme in, in some of the, the, the academic stuff I read is um, celibacy and, and certainly not spilling your seed because your your potency lies in your um, in your seed. So, sure. So again, there's, there's a there's a very, um, you know, uh, so a lot of sexually frustrated, well-built yeah, men. Yeah. So I mean, it, wow. it's a it's a pressure cooker environment yeah. for all. Sorts yeah, and of that things. comes across in the in the there is a a homoeroticism. Yeah. Um, in the story, which I I really um, liked because you really did because that is the kind of power structure one would imagine in that kind of a situation. And again, everything is beneath the surface because nothing yeah. can be talked about. Exactly. Um, there are very strict rules and everything is about uh, putting your energies in service of your sport and also the deference to your guruji yeah. and to more senior um, wrestlers. Yeah. So it's an incredibly um, stratified and and controlled yeah. environment. Yeah. But at the same time, there are these incredible tensions because the other thing to remember is that some of these boys are very young. You know, you're, yeah. you, can, you can be sent there at a really very young age yeah. um, and then trained up through your teenage years. So, yeah. so you know, these are children yeah. um, learning, learning how to live their lives in yeah. this very, very controlled way. So yeah. sometimes something is going to snap. And what I loved, there was this description that you gave, which was very interesting because it, for me it typified how Indian education might work in the sense that you know how everything becomes a one-track thing. And then your the your entire worldview is based on that one track that you've been boxed into. Mm-hmm. So if you're a, you know if you're a software engineer, then you think in those terms. Mm-hmm. If you're a scientist, well, not a scientist necessarily, but if you're uh, a mechanical engineer, you think in those terms. Mm-hmm. Or if you're a doctor, you you think within certain paradigms. Mm-hmm. Um, and I like there was this one point where you're right where he's trying where he's they're trying. Because he talks about noticing things, mm. right? And he's talking about um, trying to notice things not so much in the wrestling pit, but also around it. Yeah. Uh, because the, the kind of climactic fight doesn't happen in the wrestling pit. It happens outside of it and then goes into the wrestling pit, right? They tumble into it or something like that. I mean, he's, you know, the, I think the difficulty with the protagonist of the story is that he's just not a, not, he's not a very good wrestler. And this, this is, <laughs> you know, this is at the heart of it. He's just not very good at it. And yeah. yet has been, you know, has been made to, yeah. to have this life by yeah. family. And so that there are all these sorts of pressures. And yeah. what he needs really is information yeah. about the other 
boys in yeah. the kara about his guruji about his family yeah. and it's the one thing he can't get you yeah. know he has to somehow glean it yeah. from various sources exactly and what was interesting is that you you kind of took that gleaning of that kind of social information or that social capital and kind of showed that it it is it is seen through this prism of wrestling yeah that you have to oh in wrestling i have to look at these hints and so in my life i need to look at these hints yes because he has no other way of being socialized exactly, you know yeah. he's not he doesn't go to a regular school yeah. he doesn't have the society of other yeah. peers or yeah. other people who can bring to bear outside influences yeah. it's this incredibly closed world and i think yeah. that's that's always fascinating when you yeah. have um a gaze that that tries to shine a light on these very very closed yeah. worlds so one thing so moving on to before i move on to the question that i feel that english authors often get about you know anxiety of english so we'll come to that in the bit but before before we go there i there was something about the blurbs that was really interesting to me um where i think this is sandra newman sometimes a novel is so good that you don't want it to end i wanted each story to be expanded into a novel which i then wouldn't have wanted to end and i wonder what you thought about that well i i think it's a very lovely blurb and and i'm certainly very grateful to sandra newman for yeah. for uh for the quote um i know exactly what she means uh but i'd also say that uh it's it's in the nature of of the story to yeah. be entirely different from the novel you yeah. know and um i think people do often say this to you that you know i loved the story i wish you could make it into yeah. a novel um and do that's you, and, and i and i sort yeah. of uh, you know i i always accept that completely graciously because it's wonderful to hear that yeah. that someone enjoyed a story yeah so do you much. think it's a compliment because the fact that you left it and they'd crave that that piece of information that they feel that they couldn't get yeah no i absolutely take it as a compliment i mean it's 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 wonderful to hear anyone appreciate yeah. it in that way but i i would add that were you to take it a step further and actually do what they say and turn it into a novel oh, oh, sure. they would they would it. hate yeah. it yeah, and yeah. i think i think that that knowledge is is there yeah, yeah, but um but you know it's it's a way of saying that they really enjoyed yeah. it i but, think i think it was either joss whedon or steven moffat again please take this with a pinch of salt i might be completely confusing my references but i think it was either of them because both of them end up killing their characters a lot yeah um and i think they were asked about it and he's and they said something along the lines of um we give we we can't give the audience what they want but we have to give them what they need so the story needs to be a certain way and you can't always trust your audiences to know that that's the way it's supposed to be but yeah, the fact I, that they have that reaction is kind of a vindication of your own choice where by desiring something more they vindicate the choice that this vignette really works because it is a vignette and it leaves you desiring for more well i think a mark of a success is really that they thought about it even beyond yeah. the end of the story which i think you know that's more than you could really ask for um but but built in within that is also your knowledge that this um form was right for this story yeah. and that any other form would have been wrong yeah exactly um so which brings me to the question of anxiety of english so for those who i don't know have you heard of this phrase before 
Um, I think I've heard it expressed in a slightly different oh, okay. way, but I I think I so, know what you mean. So so um, just to be clear, like w- what I'm referring to exactly is it comes from this article by uh, Minakshi Mukherjee when she she published it back in the 80s, and she was talking about how English literature in uh, in India always has to prefix um, Indian to English, whereas if it's Marathi literature or Hindi literature or Telugu literature, it doesn't. It's de facto English. Mm. You don't have to say that it is. Oh, sorry, it's de facto Indian. You don't have to make that caveat. Mm. Um, so I so, and this again, I go back to the blurbs because this was interesting to me. Um, Siddharth Deb says. This is a wonderful collection, slicing and dicing India in 13 in unexpected ways. There was uh, Mirza Wahid, one of the finest books to come out of India. By the way, this is like free advertisement. <laughs> I'm loving it. You can carry on for as long as you like. <laughs> There's Mirza Wahid, one of the finest books to come out of India this year. Rao zooms in on, forget, for, on forgotten lives, ordinary, extraordinary, absurd, tragic. His writing is subtle, delightfully wry. I loved it. And there's finally the uh, the much celebrated jeet thail um these are deft anxious and haunting stories of a people caught between two chasms the medieval and the modern and i felt and i wanted to ask you about this that and i think you kind of answered it in the beginning uh, when you said that you you're looking at you go to specifically different contexts within india mm-hmm. um but i guess to what extent do you feel that what were you thinking oh i need to explain india in some way or i need to kind of um actually that sounds horribly orientalist but um also i would say absolutely not but, but yeah, yeah, yeah 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 no that's not what i mean i think what so what i'm trying to get to is that um there is this so within indian english writing especially in the 90s um vikram seth amitav ghosh um shashi tharoor there is this sense of writing the nation in the book um and i wondered if you if you wrote somewhere at the back of your mind if that was that sense that oh i need to write the nation in some way uh again absolutely not because i think that would just paralyze me if i yeah. felt that was my project um i think that's a great burden to take on and also yeah. this was my second book so it certainly <laughs> wasn't going to be something that i was so going to take on next few books maybe <laughs> well i was going to say if ever you know i i i don't i don't think that that would ever be my approach you mm. know because um one it's it's very sort of ponderous and grand and that's yeah. just not who i am yeah. um and and the other reason is that i i think it's an impossible task you know yeah. i think especially when you're talking about india i mean yeah i i don't know if there is or if there ever will be the great indian novel or the great indian collection sure. of short stories i don't think that such a yeah. thing you know can exist yeah. because all you can have and well the, maybe collected editions from different <laughs> authors <laughs> well perhaps this enormous compendium and still yeah. and still it would be yeah. uh, incomplete in many yeah. ways yeah oh yeah definitely um i, I mean uh, the 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 greatest claim that i would make for the collection of short stories is that i tried a few snapshots yeah and that's all yeah. uh my my ambition would allow yeah. me to do yeah um because the other the other part of it is that 
in that sense, I'm not really Indian. You know, sure. I, I'm, I've, I'd never lived in India until I moved there um, in 2008. Oh, okay. So um, I'd been familiar with the country. I'd been there many, many times, yeah. um, virtually every year or every couple of years in my sure. life. Um, so I was, I was steeped in it in various ways, but I'd never actually lived there. So, um, now I've, I've lived there, you know, for a while. Um, but again, I was quite nervous and, uh, apprehensive about doing this collection because you do feel what, what claim do you have to, to write these stories? Sure. And, And it's something that you kind of question yourself along the way. Yeah. Um, and then you stop questioning yourself and you just write. You them. just write, yeah. So, um, which is why it was interesting to me that the blurb, um, which, by the way, if uh, if you guys ever get the chance to see the book, it's a lovely cover, as as well as being a lovely book, it's a lovely cover and it's very well designed. But the blurbs, which are obviously part of what makes it, like, you know, the physical book, al- almost proclaim to the reader um, that oh look we are give this guy is giving you India in a certain way and it seems like it seems like it's repeating a lot of tropes f- about Indian English literature so you know slicing and dicing India in thirteen un- unexpected ways so oh this is a little um, unexpected look at India so th- this won't be about cows and you know, call yeah, centers yeah. but it will be about or like G and Jitha especially the mid the chasm between medieval and modern. I mean, I think what I would say is that, well, A, it's, you know, it is people being kind. I mean, blurbs are this horrible, horrible business, sure. you know. I mean, you have to have them, Yeah, one is told. I mean, although sometimes I don't see why, but I, <laughs> uh, you know, it's it's a convention, it's a, sure. it's a tradition, and you, you have to have them. Sure. And it, it does make an influence, it does influence... Um, I think what gets reviewed sometimes, um, I'm not sure that it necessarily influences a buyer of a book. Sure. It might do if they if they see their favorite author blurbing a book. Yeah. It, perhaps it does. Yeah. It's never really influenced me as a reader. Yeah, me, um, me neither. You know, yeah. I, I might look at reviews or I might look at other things, sure. but I've never sort of picked up a book because it's been blurbed by someone. Yeah. But I, but I think people... And also, ways. you don't, you don't, you don't find a book by you know with a blurb with from Marquez. God bless, his, <laughs> may he rest in peace. But with this sense of yeah, it was perfectly adequate. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I have seen blurbs where you know they're damning with faint praise, and you kind of <laughs> wonder why it's on there at all, you know. And then there are books with no blurbs at all, and then you know that's also fine. But I think sometimes in the minds of some people, it kind of raises a suspicion. Uh, is this book any good at all because sure. you didn't even manage to get one sure you know and and then it depends who's blurbing it because there are some people who are incredibly generous yeah, with yeah. their uh, with their um time and yeah. and uh, they become known as people who yeah. will happily blurb a book and yeah and then they they end up on virtually every book and then you kind of wonder um yeah. if if there is any value in yeah. that. Or, and I mean, I wonder about the value of them anyway. Yeah. But it, it's become a thing that, you know, we do in the in the publishing industry. And, and it's actually an awful process because you end up having to write these begging emails to people. Sure. And, and everyone does it and you feel quite grubby about the whole thing. Sure. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I would love a world where actually you could just send a book out into the world. Sure. With no blurbs. Yeah. But I guess my question was more like, do you, given that this is part of the marketing, 
but also do you see that in the reviews coming up where um I know you just had a French translation of 1.2 billion yeah, out. Yeah. Do you feel did did you see that in the review of it where there was the sense of oh look here's this guy telling us about India. Well, I think in France it it's been slightly different because um they don't have that much uh writing from India that gets translated. Sure. um or that has india as its subject and yeah. and in fact uh when i was interviewed by a journalist there that was one of his points was that i was very keen to read this because there is we feel a lack of translation that comes yeah. through and it's actually very important for us to know about india you yeah. know um uh in the sense in the, in a sort of geopolitical sense yeah. um in terms of uh just where we're going in the future and, yeah. and this 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 kind of if you like the pivot to the yeah. east the yeah. pivot towards india and china yeah um so i think in that sense there is maybe more of an appetite now okay um so they, in a way they are looking to have yeah. something about india explained to them sure um because i th- i guess it is baffling i mean i it's baffling to me how yeah. how we somehow managed to trundle on all 1.2 and now possibly 1.3 billion of sure. us i find it baffling on a daily basis sure. how how the center holds yeah. in some way no but that's that's what it was really i guess th- this was the the kind of overarching irony of the book where you have this wonderful collection of short stories where you're really trying to delve into the details of uh power dynamics and really trying to play with the drama of power and of in different contexts within india um including by the way this what i really loved there was this another one just as a side note about um how the indian government bans this alphabet book <laughs> in in kashmir because the the image for z or zoe zoe yeah. is um the urdu letters yeah, yeah the urdu letters zoe which is zoe for zalim which basically means um z for um, tyrant um is they feel that it's too close to looking like an indian army man and just as a way of protesting it someone graffitis a wall yeah. in the army camp this is a true story by the way this really? actually happened yeah so if you if okay. you if you google zoe se zalim yeah um in kashmir This actually happened an Urdu uh, primer an alphabet yeah. primer for yeah. for children yeah. was withdrawn um because the illustration that accompanied the letters or yeah. uh was someone it was felt who looked suspiciously like an Indian law enforcement official <laughs> and and the the book did say is always yeah. zalim so yeah. you know uh, uh, yeah. tyranny was was very much foregrounded in that and yeah. and and this actually happened i i read about it in a news really? story and um you know and it's one of those things where it's something so absurd yeah you think that uh, you know i can't satirize this yeah because you know real life has overtaken satire yeah. and i and you know i think many of us feel this more and more about yeah. about things that happen in india yeah. and when i wrote the story um you know i felt i had to exaggerate it there is a there sure. is a vein of humor that runs oh, through yeah. it partly because um the protagonist is such an unlikely hero you know he yes. he really is 
you know, quite a loser. Yeah, and, and he's a runt. Like, he's got breathing problems. He can't yeah, walk. Yeah, and he can barely just, stand up. Yeah. And yet, he's actually an incredibly brave person. And he yeah. turns out to do something fairly heroic. Yeah. But he's he's a very unlikely hero. So, yeah. part of the humor, you know, goes yeah. through this this, um, this yeah. unexpected yeah. Um, hero that we have. But the but the other part of it is just, uh, I try to exaggerate it because it, it's already an absurd situation. Yeah. And I try to ramp that up. Yeah. And um so I had a scene in there where um you know I I said that uh the law enforcement officials were looking through children's um satchels and yeah. and lunch boxes for yeah. this kind of contraband yeah. book. But then, you know, uh recently I I was reading well perhaps not that recently a few months ago when all this beef uh yeah, yeah. stuff first started hitting yeah. the headlines. That somewhere in Delhi, someone was inspecting children's lunchboxes looking for beef. Oh, gosh. And, I mean, I don't know if this is true or not, or if it was just a story or, you know, whether it actually happened. But the fact is that it, something along these lines was reported in the press. And Isn't it also scary that it gets reported in the press and you have to say, I don't know if it's true or well, not? Well, I mean, there are so many <laughs> levels of, of kind of disquiet about the whole thing. Yeah. Um, but to me, what was interesting was something that I had written in order to completely exaggerate a situation, to make it as absurd as possible, to ramp up the the almost nonsensical aspect of it, uh, this searching through people's lunchboxes, yeah. suddenly is being reported as news. And yeah. you just feel that, really, there there is no point it, in it, attempting it was, satire. Yeah, it was satire. It wasn't a challenge. It, it, <laughs> you didn't have to say challenge accepted, let's do this. It stops being satire and it just yeah. becomes... Um, a chronicle of what is happening around you. But you know, I, and I, this is taking a detour, but it, it's also one of the questions I had is, you know, when Marquez used to be called uh, a magical realist, one of the things he would say, because he was a journalist, and he said this, I think, in his Nobel Prize acceptance speech, that there is nothing magical in what I write. Mm. It's my reality is very different from the Western canons. So you need to accept the fact that this is how things happen here. Mm. Um, it, the magicalness for a Western audience really comes from the fact that it's so alien. Mm. Yeah. Um, and I wonder if, if to an extent, um, it's a bit where you have to think about, and, and this again ties into Rushdie, and again ties, and I guess ties into what Jeet Tahir said about you know the two chasms, medieval and modern, because Rust, Rushdie talks about magical realism, especially in India, as this paradox between um, something that is kind of decrepit and kind of crumbling into uh, into its age, and something that's blindingly new, and the kind of contrast and the contradiction of those two, and what that kind of brings about. Yeah, so, I do mean, you think that somewhere you not in, entirely in magical realist terms, but that somewhere that is one of the 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 um, kind of contradictions that you think about? No, I I actually try and um, uh, move a long way from that because I think this is one of the great cliches about India, country, exactly, country of yeah. contrasts, you know, exactly all of this stuff. And like it's one of the ways India is exoticized, also now. It is, and we've been hearing it um, forever, you know. Sure. And um, actually, it was interesting. I was I was watching some old archive footage um, of uh, movies that were made um, 
in India right from 1899 through to 1945. These are part of the uh, BFI archives. 1899? Uh, 1899 um, was what the earliest one. It was just Which a, one was that? It was, these are... Uh, these oh, are it was the... the yeah, 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 these sure. Are, some of them are on the BFI website, but some of them you have to go into the archives to sure. see. Um, but they're, they're, some of them are home movies uh, sure. owned by, by British officers. Others, ah, okay. others are made by different companies who were present yeah, yeah, in, yeah. in India at the time, trying to explain India to, to the West. Yeah. Others are, uh, you know, the bit fo- footage that eventually, I suppose, made it onto newsreels and yeah. that sort of thing. But, but what was interesting to me is that even right from then, um, from the early 20th century, this language of a country of contrast, you know, yeah. it it. we haven't departed that much from it very very often no. so you might still see a holiday brochure describing yeah. india as as this uh, place of yeah. uh, contrast and i for me Incre- incredible india incredible india yeah. um but for me i think what i've always really tried to do is go towards specificity yeah um and i think there are all these cliched images that you kind of want to move away from because they they remove all complexity from yeah. from your narrative yeah um the the image i always think of when when people mention this is that much publicized uh type of photograph uh which is the sadhu holding a mobile phone yeah you know so yeah, there is yeah, some yeah. variation of this that you kind of see every so often by the way you it's very funny that you mentioned this because while you were talking about this i remembered if you go to i don't know if you have been to st paul's cathedral and inside st paul's cathedral yeah, yeah have you taken the tour not i haven't taken the tour i haven't been in there for a while oh, okay but. so that is um that is a statue of william jones you know the old orientalist the guy who translated manusmriti into english right he's basically who started indology yeah um so his his kind of um monument is william jones with this book that by the way completely massacres the sanskrit language it says manuha which yeah. is nothing yeah. um but next to him there is uh, a sadhu <laughs> in marble <laughs> yeah and like a really muscular sadhu with the very very stereotypical sadhu features you know the 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 beard and the the top knot with the rudraksh bead around it and next to it is this woman in in what i assume is just like village woman in a cotton sari and a blouse and i'm just thinking this is what i saw in you know amachitra katha yeah. in the 90s well i'm simply thrilled that the sadhu didn't have a mobile phone in his hand as well because you know for yeah. me that's the kind of maybe we should petition saint paul <laughs> to add that <laughs> but it's the kind of thing that you really want to get away from yeah the sadhu's calling up his friend and saying like get me out of this orientalist place yes and it's <laughs> that thing that is supposed to in one image you know conjure up Yeah. this country where yeah. um you know uh the 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 varanasi ghats can happen at the same time as bangalore's um, yeah. technology you know and don't you feel there's a lot of indian authors and indian books that tend to exoticize india itself like you know the kind of oh the time of the elephant has come india has become one of the tigers and india is this land yeah. of contrast like it's almost as if they're packaging india for a western audience it's either that or i suppose sometimes they've they've um, absorbed it themselves mm. i mean if you've read certain kinds of books yeah um growing up and and you know this is this is what you then 
begin to believe. Yeah. Um, and I think really the way to get away from all of this stuff is to make your, your work as specific as possible. Yeah. And um, root it in in the fine detail. And, yeah. And I think that's what I... But that's what I always try to do. Talking talking about fine detail, actually. So I think we're almost at the end now. I think I have like two, two three questions left for you. Um, uh, so one question is, do you feel, because now there has been a power shift within global, global English publishing, right? Where the kind of cent- center of power has shifted from London to New York. Mm-hmm. Um do you feel that that somehow has affected the Indian English bookmark, especially literary fiction? Um, because you have been published by Daunt over here. Yeah. Um, and literary, Indian literary fiction has tended to rely heavily on being published in the, in the UK. And I think you also had a story about how your novel got published mm-hmm. in the UK and then someone picked up your short story immediately. Yeah, yeah. Um, so there is this kind of um, connection that Indian literary fiction, the field has with um, what gets published in the UK and what gets recognized in the UK, and then it kind of gets sent back to India. So do you think that has shifted and the dynamics have shifted to the US now? No, I don't think. I think we have a, a, a fairly tortured relationship with the West. In that, of course. On the one hand, um, you know, we like to say that we we don't care what they think of us. Mm. We are now, you know, we're going to forge our own paths, and <laughs> you know, um, our culture is our own. Yeah, and and you know, it is. Yeah. But but at the same time, one eye is always flickering in that direction because <laughs> you know you see it in the newspapers almost every day. Someone, I, I like the word the the word flickering that you used. <laughs> well, it's because you know you're almost a little bit embarrassed about it. But yeah, but there, but there's it, also a bit of rage there. Like there's a throbbing vein in the temple. I think it's this profound insecurity. Yeah. you know. Yeah, and it sort of wells up in in all sorts of spheres. But I'm always greatly amused by these stories in the newspapers that you see sometimes in India, where someone with the most tenuous Indian connection uh, somehow uh, is celebrated something yeah. of import yeah. uh, somewhere in the world yeah. and you know it's it's sort of celebrated as this great uh, Indian victory or yeah, um, yeah especially what V.S. Naipaul for instance like is very interesting to me that he's a guy whose ancestors probably were taken to to the West Indies as you know part of the tenured laborers mm-hmm. and like God knows when they went there and how many generations have lived uh, in the in the Caribbean before he became popular. And now he's the Indian author who won the Nobel Prize. Especially given that he wasn't terribly complimentary about India in his writing at all. Oh, sure. But, but I mean, to be honest, it's very hard to find anything he's complimentary about. He's a grouchy old man. <laughs> but I think, I mean, but, I mean, he is at least of Indian origin in, in that sense. But you, you might find a story where, you know, someone who's, not of Indian origin or, ta- or at all, but had a grandparent who was born in Lucknow or something. And this will be the the prominent sure. thing in the story that, sure. you know, in some sense, this person is one of our own. And it, yeah. it, there is this, yeah, it is quite a tortured but, relationship with with um, wanting to be uh, approved of and yeah. wanting to be appreciated. No, but the question that um, I was wondering about is also that you know, for instance, when I think Tharoor first got published, his great Indian novel first got published by Viking in the UK before it was published in India. I don't know where he signed the contract first. 
but for instance he was published first in the UK um there is this kind of you know um legitimizing structure within indian english publishing oh completely i mean it's it, it's there as a as a legitimizing uh, structure but it's also part of it is just mere snobbery you know it's, oh yeah 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 it's uh, it's a kind of a status sure. thing but some of it is just more practical in that if you're published abroad you're likely to have been paid a lot more you know yeah your advances probably higher yeah well almost certainly higher you yeah. know um there'll be a marketing push from elsewhere yeah um so so some of it is you know is stuff that you want yeah 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 um but but rolled into that is also this this notion that you've you've arrived in a different yes. way you yes. know so yeah um which and also it, i think because you're published abroad you get free publicity because of that you know the sense of oh some one of us has made it and that gets splashed in the newspapers a little bit too absolutely no? and it's a complete lottery because yeah. you know the reason you might be pub- published abroad has not got absolutely nothing to do with the merit of your work no very yeah. often you know no, it might be so. that you just you just fit into a certain picture yeah, yeah. um uh, and in fact it might be that you're very very good book is, is yeah maybe overlooked. you are the you are the sadhu with the phone <laughs> I, i might indeed be the sadhu with the phone yeah. um you know uh it's going to alarm me now for the rest of the day that you've said that <laughs> um but um but yeah i mean there there is no um it needn't be looked at as a um a definitive mark of quality really and it, sure. it absolutely shouldn't no it's, but what i'm wondering then generally a yeah. lottery What I'm wondering then is that uh, because in the UK also there is this sense I feel that oh the commonwealth um literature mm. that we have to publish literature from say Nigeria or India um so you, you know you had Matthew and series giving exposure exposure to Chinua Achebe for instance um whereas I think maybe the picture is not exactly the same for um you know for Uh, publishing in the US where it's more about diasporic fiction. Um and the reason I bring this up also is because I went to the stock recently by Vivek Shanbag who's um uh Kannada writer Telugu writer Kannada Kannada. He's a Kannada author and he got translated recently by um I'm forgetting his name but a guy who works for N+1. Uh, uh he was translated by Srinath Parur. Yeah. Yeah. And he has published with N+1 before and he's yeah. had and the the publisher was also their favorite the uk publisher mm-hmm. and he was vivek was asked this question um of how did you, what was your publishing journey and the 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 publisher the uk publisher the person from faber got up and said that oh it's just because he was getting noticed in the us mm. and there was a review in the new york times so therefore that's interesting that's interesting we, and we I mean, just it's you know so much of fiction is now a gamble for publishers because it's not selling in the way that it used to and advances have fallen dramatically yeah and people are a lot more conservative about what they buy and very often they don't know what's going to work um so a lot of this is kind of groping around in the dark i think for them and there is yeah. this tendency to be extremely conservative hmm. in um in what you publish and also there is this sense that there is a slot yeah. for um any writing that is you know for want of a better term non-white. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Um 
So, or a people of color. Yeah, I, and even within that, you know, I mean, you you might hear, oh, we've done an African novel this year. We're not going to do. Yeah, it. yeah, yeah. Um, our quotas up. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it does sometimes feel like yeah. like that, and you know, we 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 don't have any space for anyone else this yeah, year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and that might even affect you as as say you know a Southeast Asian writer or yeah. a, a South Asian writer or whatever. Yeah. Because you know there is a a limited space. Yeah. Um. Uh. According to those in power in these structures and yeah, yeah, and you, you know we're done for this year that sort of yeah. thing so you know within that i think that there is that it is a huge problem and i think part of the, the part of the problem is that the people who make these decisions are they do come from a very very small um section of society you know yeah um and i think it's it's until that opens up you know yeah it it's going to be really hard for for yeah new writers from elsewhere to break in yeah um i think that's a good point to do you think yeah thank you yeah? this has been a great pleasure yeah no thank you for coming it's uh, it, it was really i really enjoyed your books i love talking about it thank you is arriving on platform 6